Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It could be the first fireside chat where someone says out loud, dot, dot, dot. The lead starts right now. Story time with Trump. President Trump saying the whole impeachment push will backfire on Democrats as he plans to take the fight right to the people and read the Ukraine call on live TV. Plus, Mayor Pete's moment, an unknown until a few months ago, now in a statistical tie for first in a brand new Iowa poll. And tonight, what could be a make or break moment? And he's here, there, and everywhere. Vladimir Putin's growing influence around the globe, including on a possible collision course with the U.S. troops that Trump left in Syria. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Brianna Keeler in for Jake today, and we begin with the politics lead. President Trump making a pitch to defend against impeachment and make the case for his reelection in 2020. President Trump seemingly arguing that not only did he do the uh, do nothing wrong when it comes to the Ukraine scandal, but that it's just part of his unconventional style as a tough leader who gets things done. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, the president is now even suggesting that he may read the transcript of his infamous call with Ukraine's leader in a, quote, fireside chat on live television. Those in favor, please say aye. On the heels of a House vote that could lead to his impeachment, President Trump is taking the defense strategy into his own hands. He is the war room. Telling the Washington Examiner he's considering reading the transcript of his call with the Ukrainian president as a fireside chat on live television. His own aides have testified that they were alarmed by that call. Asked if he was being serious, Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham declined to offer any specifics. Sure, absolutely. When? I don't have any timing. Trump believes reading the call aloud will show people he acted appropriately. And as Democrats move to the next phase of impeachment, his campaign is fundraising off it, bringing in $3 million online as the House of Representatives voted Thursday. Trump says he believes this will backfire on Democrats. But a new poll from ABC and The Washington Post reveals Americans are sharply divided. 49% say he should be impeached and removed from office, while 47% say he shouldn't. Despite those numbers, the White House says impeachment appears inevitable. We are prepared for, for an impeachment to happen, yes. Exasperating his Republican allies, the president says his one man war room doesn't need any help, telling the examiner, I already have good people. He's hired no new communications aides since Democrats launched their probe. And it's been 235 days since the last press briefing. Whenever it's time. I think right now we're doing just fine. The stall in strategy is coming as House Democrats are preparing to take their investigation public. And Speaker Pelosi is defending her decision to move forward. We have no choice. We took an oath to protect and defend our democracy. And that is what he has made an assault on. And if the Republicans have a higher loyalty to the president than they do to their oath of office, that's their problem. 
Now, Brianna, in that interview, Pelosi emphasized that she doesn't think Democrats have made a decision yet about whether or not they're actually going to impeach the president. That is something that seems to be a foregone conclusion back here at the White House. And all of this comes as the president is getting ready today for his first rally since the vote on that impeachment inquiry. That'll happen in Mississippi tonight. All right, we'll be watching. Caitlin Collins, thank you so much at the White House for us. And this new ABC News Washington Post poll finds that the country is divided. It's pretty evenly uh, on whether President Trump should be impeached and removed from office. 49% saying yes, 47% saying no. So let's discuss this. Jen Psaki, to you first. How much work do Democrats have to do to convince Americans here? Well, I think from where Democrats are sitting, 50 percent of the public or almost 50 percent of the public thinks the president of the United States should be impeached and removed from office. Sometimes we lose perspective, but that is a huge number. Uh, I think the question for them is, what is their ceiling? How high can they grow approval for impeachment and removal to be? And Donald Trump certainly still has his loyal supporters, a percentage of the public. They're betting on the public hearings being an opportunity for the public to understand and learn and get to know what this is all about and for those numbers to rise. But if it rises five points, five to ten points, I mean, that's a huge number for the Democrats. That certainly wasn't where it was under Clinton impeachment, even though it's a different time. I'm with Jen. The one thing I would say is I think that the Clinton impeachment, while it's not apples to apples because that was Ken Starr primarily driving the investigating as opposed to the House, it showed that an investigation that began with the continuation of the Whitewater investigation, that's why Ken Starr was named independent counsel and, and went through Vince Foster and eventually wound up at Monica Lewinsky. If you focus on, try to focus on too many things at once, you can lose the public. And that's and it's, a good lesson. It's not an 80-20 issue, 80% of the, I mean, I'd be stunned if it was, but 80% of the public wants impeachment. It's 49-43, 49-47, 50-43, which means it can change. It's not overwhelming. So I think you saw Nancy Pelosi say that to Bloomberg today. She said there's a law of diminishing returns, which is how long do you keep this going and how many strands do you try to pull in? Because you can lose the public on something like that. Let's talk about this poll. If we try to compare best we can apples to apples, it's never exactly apples to apples. But in this same poll taken in December 1998, Mm -hmm. only 33 percent said that Clinton should be impeached and removed. So, Bill, this 49 percent number is pretty significant Uh, And yet I wonder if what's the critical number? What's critical mass? Yeah, who knows? I mean, it's the thing is, it has grown over the last three, four months. We're so used to poll numbers not changing much. Trump's numbers have been so sticky. And in typical issues, gun control, taxes or whatever, people have been talking about them for 10, 20, 30 years. So, of course, they don't change their mind overnight on them. Impeachment, the Ukraine story broke, what was it, Mm mid-September, right? And in those seven, eight weeks... Seven weeks, I guess. It's it's public opinion has moved more than one would expect, more than we've seen on most issues. And, and why? Because people, and Democrats have done okay, I think, in terms of their messaging, and I think the Speaker Pelosi's managed it well. But mostly, it's the facts. Mostly, people keep learning new things, and it turns out, gee, it is kind of as bad as I thought. And secondly, I think it's the witnesses. We haven't heard the witnesses publicly yet. But it's not like Clinton and Lewinsky, where it was a kind of a sordid tale, and not to blame other, everyone involved. But I mean, n- no one really felt good hearing about more details about that. 
Here you have Colonel Vindman testifying that he was doing his duty as a military officer. You have Bill Taylor, 72-year-old, extremely respected diplomat, testifying that he was doing his duty as a diplomat. They were all appalled by what they were seeing. These aren't flaky people, people with grudges, people with partisan inclinations. So if the entire national security apparatus of the government, the Defense Department lawyers, are saying, where's the aid? We need the aid. You know, if everyone is concerned, it makes it at least something worth being concerned about. Whether people ultimately get to impeachment and removal is another question. Sungman, what do you think? Well, I think that that was sort of the case that Democrats who had been for impeachment far before the Ukraine issue broke had been making, that the more Democrats explain what is happening to the public, they could actually turn public opinion to their side. And now it took something like this Ukraine issue to persuade Nancy Pelosi and a, and a critical mass of House Democrats to, uh, to get on board with, and first of all, an impeachment inquiry. And it looks like an inevitable impeachment or, or perhaps an impeachment at this point. But it's going to be really up to Democrats to just keep making that public case. And meanwhile, you're going to have President Trump out there making his political case with the unique megaphone that he has starting at the rally tonight, uh, continuing with a series of rallies next week. Um, now he's talking about a potential reading of this transcript in a fireside chat of I mean. sorts, which is such an interesting thing because we were, uh, I spoke Interesting to a, is one way to yeah. make that. Very <laughs> but, political. But, I, but <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> but, I mean, but the transcript is something that he is fixated on right now. I talked to a lot of Republican senators who were at this lunch with the president yesterday at the White House. And one consistent message from the president that the senators relayed to us was that he was really proud of his decision to release that transcript because he believes it exonerates him. Which he I thought think it was is, a good idea. I, I, think, I mean, I think that is, uh, it's something exactly right. I think that is crazy. Except here's the if you, of truth If you look it. at it, the only thing I can see is it doesn't say, hey, man, this is a straight-up so, quid pro quo. But <laughs> short, short of that... But the like, sophisticated defense of Trump is going to become... He shot his mouth off. He blustered. He was just talking. Not He's just yeah. talking. Yeah, 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 it yeah. can't impeach the guy in an offhand comment. Some other president probably made a comment to a foreign president. But... That's an attempt to therefore obfuscate the fact that there were a lot of deeds, a lot of actions that happened before and after that phone call, right? And he, I think he fired the ambassador. He delayed the, the military aid, contrary to the recommendations of all the departments. Yeah, and I, um, that, that, because I think it's important that people keep their focus on the broad spectrum of what Trump did as well as said. And I think as Trump just keeps driving the public narrative <laughs> here and the communication strategy, Republicans are going to become more and more uncomfortable. They do not want him to do a primetime reading of the notes of the transcript. They are not willing to, they may make exactly the case Bill made, but they're not going to stand by the substance of this. This becomes more and more difficult. Even though he is, he is the one-man war room, but you can now also call President Trump Florida man. The lifelong <laughs> New Yorker says he's moving to the Sunshine State, will Fifth Avenue ever be the same? And then, is Vladimir Putin playing a game of risk with real consequences, the move that he's making even on this side of the Atlantic Ocean? The born and raised New Yorker who has built his brand on being a Manhattan entrepreneur is switching his primary residence from his Trump Tower penthouse to his Florida resort, President Trump saying that the switch is for tax purposes, to which New York Governor Andrew Cuomo responded, quote, it's not like Trump paid taxes here anyway. He's all yours, Florida, end quote. And New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio also tweeting, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Well, let's talk about this because, you know, so far he's not spent much time in New York. He's been up there, what, 20 days since becoming president, 99 in Florida. Are, are we really surprised that he's 
deciding to do this, Sungmin? No, and you're right. He doesn't go up to New York very often. A lot of it, I mean, think of just the logistical reasons or logistical issues involved with having a president in such a big city. He is going up there this weekend, so that'll be a rare visit um, and overnighting at his uh, home up there. But the comments from the New York governors and the New York City mayor are just are, are pretty funny. And it's also a reminder of a lot of how his, uh, his antagonists in Congress have actually hailed from New York. If you look at some of the key uh, House chairmen, especially one of the ones, some of the ones who've led the these investigations, you know, Jerry Nadler's from New York, Elliot Engel, who's one of the uh, lead on the three committees investigating or leading the impeachment inquiry, is from New York. Nita Lowy, who uh, oversees appropriations, that wall of his that he wants so much. She's also from New York. And Chuck Schumer's from New York. So New York, a lot more, many more antagonists for President Trump in more ways than one. Can you imagine life if he, for him, what it would be like if he was in New York after leaving the presidency in this extremely liberal town. No, I mean, in addition to the antagonists in Congress, there are millions of New Yorkers <laughs> who do not like Donald Trump. The vast majority of New Yorkers who do not like Donald Trump. That's not something he is comfortable with or has lived through in that sort of in-your-face way. So it's not a surprise, I think, to me it's, at all. No, it's not. And the tax thing, look, it's why NBA players, why the Miami Heat are always <laughs> in the mix for every NBA guy who's a free agent because of the lack of taxes, them and in Texas. But... I just, New York is so core to kind of how he defines himself, mm -hmm. right? He's a, he, he's, I'm, I build the biggest buildings. You know, it's like the, the whole opening to The Apprentice. You know, all the big buildings and the helicopters. And, the, and he's, he prides himself in the brashness and the, the, the kind of like, this is how we do it here in the big city. That I do think, I mean, I get why he would not go back, but it is kind of, it's so central so to his a, personality. Assuming he minimizes his time in New York as he has in the presidency, in a way it's almost like, a, it's almost like an exile in a way. Yeah, maybe he intends not to run in 2020. I'm just like, thinking of the bright side of this. <laughs> and he wants to make sure he's got his, you know, Mar his Florida. Uh, I don't uh, think you move to Florida if you're not running in 2020, but. Yeah. No, <laughs> to the contrary. But then you're like, you may even have to pay taxes or something like that once, once he's out of office and deal with law enforcement. And he's better off being in Florida. That's my contrarian in inter <laughs> interpretation. All right. He yeah. knows he's going to be impeached and removed from office or he's going to choose not to run in 2020. And he's therefore has decided. It's Florida. All it's right, retiring. Bill. Retiring. We'll Florida. See. Retirement. We'll see if that flies. All right. So he is in a statistical tie for first in a key early state, and his last name isn't Sanders, Warren, or Biden. Tonight, at the same event that rocketed Barack Obama into the national spotlight in 2007, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg will try to capture some of the same magic. A new poll out of Iowa shows that he has a good start. Buttigieg is polling at 18 percent, sharing the top tier with Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and also former Vice President Joe Biden. But as CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports from Des Moines, there's still plenty of work for Buttigieg to do change that America can believe in. At this point in that presidential campaign, this 46-year-old senator from Illinois was still an underdog, well behind Hillary Clinton, but slowly starting to catch fire. This year, the youngest candidate in the race is also on the move. Are you ready to leave behind the reality show in Washington and change the channel to something we can all be proud of? It's too soon to know if Pete Buttigieg will follow the rise of Barack Obama but he's turning some of the same heads in Iowa, like Terry and John Hale. So does he remind you of Senator Obama? Absolutely. It's the intelligence. It's that cool composure. It's the ability to be presidential. He is, is catching on. The more people that see him, the more people that support him.
It was 12 years ago when Obama's long-shot candidacy turned a corner here, dazzling thousands of Democrats at the state party's fall gala. This time, the Hales are among many Obama admirers, now on the Buttigieg bandwagon. Pete and Obama both had a certain amount of pragmatism to them. At a recent rally, Terry Hale introduced the South Bend mayor. Right now, Mayor Pete Buttigieg! And she said she felt like she did in 2007. The energy and the excitement and the positivity and the hope, that's what I feel at events for Pete. And I have not felt that since Barack Obama. Buttigieg was also watching that race closely, volunteering for Obama in the final days of the Iowa contest. It's what's going on on the ground and what kind of relationships you're forming uh, that serve you well when the caucus day actually rolls around. No two campaigns or candidates are the same, yet both men represent a fresh face and are calling for change. I believe that we need a new generation of leadership to step forward. Same old Washington textbook campaigns just won't do in this election. The Buttigieg campaign is embracing the comparisons, trying to use its $23 million cash on hand and momentum in the polls to build a modern-day Obama-like operation. Tommy Vitor, part of Obama's original Iowa team, says the burden is now on Buttigieg to meet these expectations. Barack Obama came up as, as a grassroots organizer, and I think that made the whole campaign sort of make sense and flow from him. But like, it still remains to be seen if that's going to deliver on caucus day. And that, of course, is the challenge facing the Buttigieg campaign here, Brianna. You can see behind me a lot of supporters are gathering here. There's a van, there's a bus. They are gearing up for that dinner tonight. I can tell you, after covering the Obama campaign, the campaigns seem very similar. The energies, the crowds seem similar. The candidates, of course, very different, and it is a very different time. But, Brianna, there are so many Obama alumni working on the Buttigieg campaign. Many of them hope the same outcome here in three months. Of course, the voters will decide that. Brianna? Well, the poll is very interesting. Jeff Zeleny in Des Moines, thank you for that report. Um, Jen Psaki, you worked, obviously, for former President Obama. Is this a fair comparison? You know, I think Democrats um, historically have loved kind of intellectual, smart, young, charismatic figures. Barack Obama was one. You could argue Bill Clinton was one. And, and Pete Buttigieg certainly is one as well. And I think what the similarity is, I, I, there are a couple similarities, but one of them I would point to is that when people go see him and they learn more about him and they hear him speak and watch his interviews, mm -hmm. a lot of Democrats like what they have to see. So for him, the, the encouraging number in some of the polls is that two-thirds of Democrats in the Iowa caucus poll are willing to look at other options. He's already high in the polls, but I think yep. his hope is to do what Barack Obama did, do what John Kerry also did, which is to kind of make a move when there's an opening. And there always is an opening in the Iowa caucus in the final months. Let's look at the poll. Uh, brand new Iowa poll out. Warren Sanders, Buttigieg and Biden all there. Um, and, you know, Chris, it seems mm -hmm. like you look at that and you say, OK, Warren Sanders, Biden, Buttigieg. Yeah, I <laughs> this mean, is the this is the thing we're keeping our eye on. The right fact now. I keep coming back to and reminding people is Joe Biden spent eight years as the vice president of the United States, 30 plus years in the Senate and has been the front runner effectively since the day he got into this race. He has less than nine million dollars in the bank. Pete Buttigieg, who is the South Bend, Indiana mayor, has 23 million dollars in the bank. I mean, that that in and of itself, that stat is mind blowing. This uh, poll, I think. I'm, I'm with Jen. I think if you look at this, you're thrilled uh, if you're Pete Buttigieg, not necessarily because you're in that top tier, though that's certainly helpful, but because if you're not already for certainly Sanders or Biden, 
these are known commodities. Biden has been around forever. Sanders ran last time. If you're not for them now, what's the message that convinces you to be for them? Whereas with Buttigieg, if you look at that poll, Biden, Warren, Sanders, all very well known by voters. Buttigieg, much less known. That's great for him. He's got the money to spend to sell what is a pretty compelling life story up to this point. Why do you think he's doing so well, Sungman? Well, I think there's a number of reasons, but I I keep coming back to how he's been able to kind of really contrast himself with the front runners and kind of punch up if necessary without turning off a lot of the voters. I mean, I keep thinking back to the moment where Julian Castro went after Biden in one of the debates with a pretty uh, not so subtle dig at his age. And that really was a liability for him. But, you know, uh, Buttigieg has been able to focus it a little bit more on policy. He really went after Warren hard in the I believe in the last debate over the Medicare issue, which I know we'll talk about later. And that actually he was seen as doing very well in that debate. I think what he's trying to do now is kind of uh, seize sort of the Biden lane, if you will, in terms of ideology and policy, but with the fresh face added. And we see with the former vice president's decline in the polls, I think that's a lane that if Buttigieg does well, that he could really capture. So we've seen one of his struggles, though, Bill, is African-American voters. He does pretty dismally with them. So you're seeing him do well in Iowa, but in an October Monmouth University poll, he had 3% support in South Carolina, where there are many African-American voters, and uh, it's essential that he appeal to this voting bloc. What what would happen there if, say, he had a strong performance in Iowa? I think they would take a look at him. I think most of them have no idea who he is. I don't think they have anything against him, particularly. He's just not been fighting for the causes they care about the way Biden has for decades. And to some degree, Warren and Sanders, they would have, have some knowledge of some issues that they've been prominent on. So I think the key for Buttigieg is Iowa, Iowa, Iowa. He needs to be top three. If he were top two, that would be even better. If he won, that would be even better. And then it can really take off. I mean, these are extremely dynamic. The the primary process, when you have a multi-candidate field narrowing to a small field, we've seen this many times, that's when it's its most dynamic. That's when Iowa just is a slingshot. And Gary Hart goes from being second in Iowa to winning New Hampshire, almost beating Mondale, who was a prohibitive favorite that year. So uh, once John Glenn, who was an early favorite, he totally collapsed. So that could be a sort of analogy to Biden well, and, and Warren. So I, do, I take Buttigieg seriously. I do not believe he's going to run a good race, but of course he's not really going to win. He could win. Next, we will talk about another front runner uh, who, who has dodged a question for weeks now. Elizabeth Warren showing everyone how she is going to pay for Medicare for all. Will you be on the hook for it? In our 2020 lead, after months of being hit for not really having a way to pay for her Medicare for All plan, Elizabeth Warren today said she has it figured out. But does the math really add up? MJ Lee now on whether today's rollout will quiet Warren's critics. It's left behind. It's right there in the plan and it's fully paid for. Elizabeth Warren finally releasing her own plan on how to pay for Medicare for All. The presidential candidate answering one question she's repeatedly dodged for weeks. Will you raise taxes on the middle class for pay, to pay for it, yes or no? Costs will go up for the wealthy and for big corporations. And for hardworking middle class families, costs will go down. We heard it tonight, a yes or no question that didn't get a yes or no answer. Now, for the first time, Warren saying her answer is no. I have a plan that shows how we can have Medicare for all without raising taxes one cent on middle class families. Her price tag? 
$20.5 trillion of new federal spending over 10 years. The senator laying out the math, saying nearly half would come from continued employer contributions. The rest? Taxes on additional take-home pay, coming from employees no longer having to pay health insurance premiums. Cracking down on tax evasion and fraud. Taxing financial companies and large corporations. She's also beefing up her signature wealth tax under the new plan. Americans would now pay six cents for every dollar of wealth over one billion dollars rather than three cents. Her Democratic rivals quickly piling on. Former Vice President Joe Biden's campaign saying in a statement, her proposal dramatically understates its cost, overstates its savings, inflates the revenue, and pretends that an employer payroll tax increase is something else. Warren's new pledge to not raise taxes on the middle class, a contrast from Bernie Sanders, the author of Medicare for All. But I do think it is appropriate to acknowledge that taxes will go up. Warren also saying she'll soon release another plan detailing the transition to Medicare for All, leaving open the possibility of more divergence from Sanders' bill. Asked today whether she's discussed her new plan with Sanders. I've called him, but he hasn't returned my call yet. Now, her critics have quickly pounced on this, saying this plan is not realistic. The math can't possibly add up. One of the things they're pointing to is the fact that Senator Warren would like to get comprehensive immigration reform done as a way of paying for Medicare for all. This, of course, is something that has eluded Washington for many years. Brianna. Yes, it's almost a unicorn in Washington. MJ Lee, thank you so much. Okay, uh, let's talk about this, Jen. The Biden camp responded to Warren's plan. They called it doublespeak. They called it sleight of hand. They called it mathematical gymnastics. Is this realistic, her plan? To pay for this. Well, look, you know, she's the candidate who's run effectively as the one with plans for everything. And I will give credit where credit is due, which is to her communications team, because that was brilliant. Um, but this is funny money. Um, and it's not, you know, immigration reform passing, no more OCO spending, uh, lots of cuts. Or, OCO spending. Uh, like overseas spending. Overseas right, exactly. So um, overseas spending, like through the military needs. I mean, these are things that are very difficult to pull mm-hmm. off and never mind pull them off to pay for health care plan altogether. The reality, the though, is here. She may have checked the box for Democratic primary voters, which is essentially what she needed to do. And ultimately, if you look to a year from now, she's the nominee. If someone else is the nominee, I will bet they're not going to run on Medicare for all. I will bet they will run against Donald Trump trying to take away coverage for pre-existing conditions and to take away access to health care. So, you know, on the political front, she may have checked the box she needed. Because to that's what she needs to do is to sell voters on this uh, with the realization that is Medicare for all really ever going to pass Congress if she's elected? Probably not. Right. I think it's not a Medicare for all problem, but it is partly because people are nervous about losing their health insurance. It's just a big government liberal spending problem. Maybe that doesn't hurt in the Democratic primary, though maybe some Democratic primary voters don't want the government taking all of our money. Even I mean, the, so the focus on whether it could be paid for assumes that it's a good idea for the government to take an extra 20 or 30 trillion dollars out of the rest of the economy and then decide how to spend it. And I think among, independent voters, among independent <laughs> voters in the general election, I have been sort of open really in the, to the notion that Warren could be OK, could win them over, could defeat Trump, you know, would could make herself acceptable to them, despite the kind of her reputation as being such a strident liberal. But I'm, I'm losing a little faith in that, I've got to say. And this conversation is why. I mean, Republicans, even if they're getting a little bit of or a lot of heartburn about Trump and Trump's actions, they're really eager for that moment when there is an official Democratic nominee. And they're saying, you know, all the crazy stuff that we've gone through with impeachment or whatnot, once we have that Democratic nominee, 
it's now it's no longer or 2020 is no longer a referendum on Trump. It is a choice between two mm-hmm. candidates. And we believe that especially with some of the positions that Democrats are espousing, you can make that effective contrast. And even if Warren does not end up being does not end up being the official nominee, I mean, I'm pretty sure Republicans will continue to kind of use this against whoever the nominee is. Chris, I want to ask you about this, something that we're seeing in this New York Times, Siena College mm-hmm. poll that shows these four top really four in the top tier in Iowa, Elizabeth Warren, 22 percent, Bernie Sanders, 19 percent, Buttigieg at 18, Joe Biden at 17. And I think this is a point, I think Sung, Sungman made this point earlier. When you look deeper, only 33 yeah. percent of these respondents said their mind is made up, 65 percent. So two-thirds of these folks say they could be persuaded to caucus for a different candidate. Yeah, I mean, I try to remind myself of this a lot just because of the nature of what we all do for a living is not normal in in lots of ways, <laughs> but, but particularly as it relates to ways in which the race feels as though it's begun. I mean, we've been at this now for the better part of a year. I mean, Elizabeth Warren got in the race in December of last year. Even in Iowa, where I know the cliche goes, someone's going to speak better about this because she's from <laughs> Iowa, but even in Iowa... People are not that dialed in, right? Maybe they're following following the Hawkeyes football season or the Cyclones football season. The other things are happening, so it does not surprise me. Also, by the way, almost none of these candidates outside of Tom Steyer and Donald Trump have spent any Mm -hmm. money on television. So that's a way that the race feels more real (laughs) to you. I just think we overestimate the extent to which people on a a day-by-day basis are following. (laughs) A great illustration of that. I was at a Bernie Sanders rally last week in my hometown of Iowa City. I happened to run into a high school friend or a college friend. I said hello, and I asked him, are you feeling the burn? Is Bernie Bernie your candidate? He's like, I'm testing out the burn. I'm still looking around, still seeing what's up. Testing out the burn. All right, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Russian President Vladimir Putin is stepping in as America takes a step back. The power play that is even happening in America's backyard. In our world lead, it didn't take long for Vladimir Putin to announce plans to carve up parts of northern Syria after President Trump pulled troops from the region. And now the troops that President Trump left there to protect oil fields could end up in direct confrontation with Russian forces who have quickly filled the power vacuum. And as CNN's Fred Pleitkin reports, that's just one example of Vladimir Putin flexing his political and military might for strategic gain across the globe. It's great to be with you. President Trump's cozy relations with Vladimir Putin are well documented. You know what? Putin's fine. He's fine. But while repeatedly calling Russia's interference in the 2016 election a hoax, the U.S. president is gifting Putin one foreign policy victory after the next, spanning almost the entire globe. In the Middle East, Syria is only the latest case of America stepping back and Russia stepping in. Russian forces now patrolling the northeast of that country after President Trump abandoned America's allies there, the Kurds, forcing them to allow Russia into the area. We never agreed to protect the Kurds for the rest of their lives. Putin is now the new strong man in the region, even traditional U.S. allies like Saudi Arabia and the UAE courting the Kremlin, as Putin makes a sales pitch for Russian military equipment instead of American gear. The leadership of Saudi Arabia just needs to make the wise decision, just like Iran did when they bought S-300, and just like Erdogan when he bought S-400. They will protect any Saudi infrastructure. 
And while President Trump has shown little interest in Africa, Putin is putting on a diplomatic full-court press with the continent's leaders. Russia has signed military technical cooperation agreements with more than 30 countries, where we supply a large array of weaponry and hardware. Meanwhile in Europe, President Trump has been alienating long-standing NATO allies, calling America's commitment to their safety into question. And the president held back military aid to Ukraine, which is facing a Russian-backed insurgency, pressuring Ukraine's president to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden and Biden's son, leading to Congress's impeachment inquiry. There's no evidence of wrongdoing by Joe Biden or his son. I'm only interested in corruption. I don't care about politics. I don't care about Biden's politics. Even in Latin America, the same pattern. While U.S. public support for Venezuela's self-declared interim president Juan Guaido seems to have diminished, strongman Nicolas Maduro is still in power as Russia's support for him remains steadfast, sending a clear message to the world of America in retreat and Vladimir Putin filling the void. And you know, it's remarkable because Vladimir Putin isn't even that popular here in Russia right now because of the bad economic situation and a botched pension reform. So these foreign policy gifts that he keeps getting from President Trump not only make him stronger abroad, but also help keep him in power here in Russia as well. Brianna. All right, Fred, thank you so much for that report. Okay, so, you know, one of the arguments the president makes is that these places are thousands of miles away. The U.S. doesn't need to involve itself. And, hey, if Russia is going to get involved, so be it. The, the U.S. will welcome that. What's the effect, though, Jen? You know, you're someone who uh, represented the State Department as a spokesperson. What's the effect of giving Russia free reign here? Well, one, let me just plug the Carnegie Endowment has a project called the Rise of Global Russia that's been around for two years. And part of what President Putin's been doing is looking for spots in the world where there is a leadership vacuum and an opening to have influence. So what he's trying to do, I would say, in Africa is there are a number of African nations who can be influential in the United Nations. He wants to get those people on his side. He also has reportedly um, his um, I, the guy who used to head the IRA is also training more people to do propaganda across Africa. He has kind of mercenaries across Africa. So what he's trying to do without a lot of financial resources, which they don't have, is to spread his influence while the U.S. is looking elsewhere. I mean, look, there's an impact. Everyone who knows anything about foreign policy tells you that there's an impact when a global power like the United States is led by someone who actively says we need to pull back. We don't need to be defending these people. Where were they, you know, in the Peloponnesian Wars? Whatever. Uh, the... I, Those are before our time. Oh, really? I'm wondering. Yeah, yeah, good point. But we got but, your joke. No, thank you. Uh, the, the point being... Uh, Foreign policy, like politics, abhors a vacuum, right? So if there is space created in Syria, in Africa, if the United States is not playing as active a role, of course someone like Putin will see and try to take opportunity. But I, I also say, I was just on a foreign policy panel, so it happens earlier today, and, and if all the serious people are talking about China. China is the true, which is true in a sense, is the, is the real global competitor. Russia is poor, they don't have much money, it's a, it's a thuggish state. But I think they underestimate the damage that Russia can do just by sowing chaos and by supporting mm -hmm. authoritarians. We've seen this in Europe. So that it's not a China-type competitor, but the world can get a heck of a lot more dangerous if China, if Russia 
helps authoritarianism, doesn't mind the spread of weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons. Crushes free press. Crushes free press, shows other authoritarians how to do this. So I, I think Putin is, is a big problem. Actually. By the way, look I mean, what they did in our 2016 election. Well, that's a good I point. I mean, right? Yeah. Uh, just in terms of sowing chaos and doubt. And this is one of the reasons why there were so I mean, there were many reasons, but there was so much pushback from congressional Republicans with the president's decision to pull troops out of Syria earlier this month or last month, I guess, at this point, Um, because, I mean, obviously the Republicans were making that, you know, this could embolden terrorism in the region. It would break our promise to the Kurdish allies. But they were saying this is going to create a vacuum that would embolden Putin. And that's why there was so much criticism. Um, The criticism for so far has died down a little bit and we're not hearing too much of it. But that was kind of part of the the concern that you were seeing from Republicans at the time. And yet the president is not swayed by any of these arguments that foreign policy experts have made. In fact, it's interesting to point out, Jen, and this is according to Washington Post reporting, that it was Putin and Hungary's leader who in part helped sour the president on Ukraine. Why is he so susceptible to this kind of message coming from Putin? I mean, he likes authoritarian thugs. Um, He responds to them. Uh, They probably know how to manage him and flatter him. Uh, There is an elements whenever you whenever any leader of state or even high level diplomatic officials meeting with another country where they are flattering you and they're trying to kind of get you on good terms. Trump is very susceptible to that. But and Putin I think we're seeing to have that a special Putin seems Putin, to have a special maybe he has, uh, clout with he has Trump. A, a special way and clout with Trump. I mean, what's interesting, there's a lot of interesting components of the Syria situation, obviously, and, and troubling ones. One of them is that Trump has has said this is his way of getting troops out, right, of pulling back our presence. When in reality, what we're seeing is we're going to need more troops in Iraq to cover for the ISIS, um, uh, you know, ISIS terrorists who are loose. We're going to need more of a presence. So it's actually doing the opposite of what he said he wanted to do. So what does the Democrats case for impeachment really look like right now? We'll have that ahead. Tune in this Sunday morning to State of the Union. White House advisor Kellyanne Conway will join us along with the number three Democrat in the House, Congressman James Clyburn, plus 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang. That will be Sunday at 9 a.m. and 12 p.m. Eastern. And you can follow me on Twitter at Brie Keeler CNN. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. I'm Brianna Keeler in for Jake Tapper. And our coverage on CNN continues right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 